Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In March, workers at an Amazon facility in Alabama decided whether to unionize for the first time in company history. And although the union vote failed, the push from the majority black workforce raised questions about the makeup and future of unions in America. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Coming up, we'll speak with a researcher about what lies ahead for unions and how their membership is changing. Later, we'll hear from a reporter about negotiations in Connecticut between the state, operators, and long-term healthcare workers. But first, Janelle Jones is chief economist for the U.S. Department of Labor. Her work centers the role of Black women in the workforce, and she now is in a key position to shape the future of labor policy in the U.S. Janelle, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I want to start with the historic nature of the role that you're playing at the Department of Labor. You are the first Black woman to be chief economist, and much of your work has centered issues of racial equity, and in particular, Black women in the workforce. How does being in this position at this moment in our country's history shape the work that you are doing? That's a great question. And, you know, the the historic nature of the appointment is is not lost on me or my family, for that matter, who are still keeping the, the family chat very much alive with excitement. Um, you know, something that really excited me about uh, then uh, potential uh, president-elect Biden and now President Biden is his commitment to equity. Um, you know, we heard a lot about it on the campaign trail uh, and I'm, I'm really, you know, just excited and thrilled to see that he's really brought that into his role as president. His very first executive order was on advancing racial equity and serving marginalized populations and just a broad mandate for all of the federal agencies to think about the work we're doing around equity and how we can think about, you know, reaching populations that are usually left behind. And I think, you know, at this moment, I think we're we're all probably tired of hearing the word unprecedented. Uh, but it's still very much true. You know, we're, we're facing a, a once in a generation health crisis. We're facing an economic recession. And to bring the, the framework and the narrative around inclusion and equity to how we come back from this, it's just, you know, it really is an opportunity that, you know, I'm, I'm really proud and excited to see that we are not wasting. There will be people who will listen to that, who will hear you mention things like centering equity and the unprecedented health crisis and the economic devastation that many people have experienced over this last year because of the measures that we needed to keep people healthy and safe. And they will ask, why then, with so many people who are struggling, why then should we talk about race and equity? How do you respond to that? That's a that's a good question. And, you know, anyone who asked me that would not be alone in asking that question. And I think, you know, I have two answers. One is what happens when we don't? We have an economy that is fundamentally flawed. We have an economy that is less resilient to dealing with recessions. We have an economy where not just, uh, you know, people of color left behind, but, you know, the it's not just white folks or it's not just people of color who, you know, need unemployment insurance, who need food assistance, who need housing assistance. 
And what we see is when we don't think about the groups who are usually left behind, when we don't focus on race and ethnicity, it is hard to bring those groups in later. It's hard to say like, let's do a policy over here and let's let's add in the black folks later. We see that that is impossible to do and it just makes our economy less resilient. So I think now is really the time to thinking about building a robust, inclusive economic recovery that, that's better for all of us. It really, it really is a way to think about inclusion um, that makes everyone better off and not just you know the groups that we tend to be highlighting. Let's talk about how that focus on inclusion can create better opportunities and better outcomes for the entire country. You have pioneered the phrase, Black women best. What does that phrase mean to you and how does it shape the work that you do? Yeah, um, you know, I, I came across this phrase maybe a year ago or so, and someone asked, you know, if you had just three words to sum up, you know, what you think about the economy, what's your economic ideology? Uh, and th these were the three words, was Black women best. Um, and it really is, you know, a framework that reorients our economic worldview. It says that if we can center, you know, who we, um, if we can shift who we center in economic analysis and policy, we can create an economy that works better for everyone. A Black woman best ideology, you know, leads to enacting deliberate strategies of inclusion. It leads to an economy where our most marginalized can thrive. And I think this is the type of thinking, you know, certainly in my role at DOL that I'm still you know, really excited to be doing. Um, and, you know, I think we we see the need to center these folks in policy solutions and the way that we're evaluating whether or not a program is good. And, you know, something I'm, I'm thinking about now is also, you know, how we evaluate when we've succeeded, when we've actually recovered. Um, so I think it really is a, a helpful tool and narrative way to, to think about centering folks who are usually left behind. How might this pandemic or the lessons of the pandemic affect what we do to better center the equity concerns that you mentioned, but also look forward to think about how should we be doing things differently to lift up those underrepresented communities? Such a great question. You know, I think something that I really hope comes from this is that we don't return to an economy of early 2020, um, that we also don't return to an economy of, of four years ago, right? Like we've seen a, a generation of attacks on collective bargaining, on workers' benefits, on wages. Um, and so really hoping that, you know, I, I hate to say it, I know it is the slogan, but it's true. Like we really are trying to build back better when we think about this. And so, you know, I, I think that President Biden is taking this moment to reimagine and to rebuild an American economy that works for workers. I, I talked to, to folks I know who are raising kids during this time and they're, you know, they just, they just want to scream into the phone for 30 minutes. <laughs> and I'm happy to listen to that. But I think, you know, we have seen that we need a care economy to make sure that the rest of the economy is going. An investment in infrastructure and care is also a, a real investment in black and brown women. We know that about half of domestic workers are black and brown women. And so when we say we want these jobs to be good paying, we want them to have benefits, we want them to have security and dignity and stability, we are supporting black and brown women, not just as workers, but also their families and their communities. The work that you've been doing around equity and the need to address it from a systemic structural space really affirms that it's not that women are voluntarily leaving the workforce, it is that often they are pushed out because of these competing demands on their time. What sort of strategies would you recommend that as we are thinking about building back better and, and stronger and more inclusive, what are the things that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, this is such such an important point. Um, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, 
4 million women have left the workforce and there's still 2 million that haven't returned. About a half a million black women have left the workforce. And this, um, you know, before this, you know, black women are, are very much attached to the labor market. They have higher labor force participation rates than their counterparts. And so it really is, um, you know, being forced out because of these responsibilities that you mentioned, like care and school closings and things like that. And I think these investments in the care economy are, are a great start. Um, you know, we're also thinking about other sorts of, of benefits that folks need to stay attached. Um, and, you know, one that the president has come out um, in favor of and, you know, my, my boss, uh, Secretary Walsh, who I'm really excited to be working with, is also in favor of um, is the PRO Act. And we see that when folks are uh, in a union, they have better benefits, they have more access to the, the supports and structures that they need to stay attached during hard times. Um, you know, we've, we've definitely seen that over the over the past year that uh, folks who are in a union had better economic outcomes than their counterparts who weren't. So I think, yeah, there's some there's some exciting um, policies we have in place that we can move forward on. Uh, but we really, you know, the the point I think I've I've been making for a couple of months now is we really just have to keep going. We really do have to keep our foot on the gas. I am as excited as anyone um, to see that we are we're going back out. We're we're going. We're doing things. Um, you know, the the CDC announcements and whatnot. Um, but we're not done. You know, we're we're not there yet. We still have so many workers and families and communities that are not yet experiencing economic recovery. And so we just have to keep going. So let's talk about the the keep going aspect. As the country is starting to reopen, as people are starting to engage more, you mentioned the PRO Act, which is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. It's already passed in the House. It's awaiting a vote in the Senate. And one of the things that that act would do was increase protections in the workplace for workers to organize. And it also provides a mechanism to levy fines against companies who break these laws. How important is it as we think about inclusive recovery, as we think about protecting and inform and affirming workers, particularly workers of color, how important is that act to creating a federal foundation for the work that can happen at every level? I mean, so important. Is there is there any other answer rather than so important? You know, I've talked um, and, and other places about, you know, the experience I've had with seeing, you know, my mom go from working in fast food to, to getting a, a union job and just the, the transformation it made, not just in that she was making better wages, but in that she had, you know, worker protection, that she had benefits, we had better health insurance, we, we knew when she would be going to work and when she wouldn't be. Um, so, I, you know, I, I really do, like I've seen in my own life, the way that um, organizing and union membership can just change fundamentally how a person experiences the economy and society and their family life. And so, you know, I think the president has been, um, you know, out in front of this, as has the secretary, about how the middle class, you know, a strong middle class is it's so, so important to a strong economy. Um, we cannot, you know, we can't have a, a class of workers who don't have protections, who don't have a voice on the job. And so we know that over the past generation, I want to say, um, there's really been an erosion of America's middle class in terms of workers' rights. Um, we've seen, you know, union membership decline. We've seen um, right to work being organized at the state level. And so protecting workers' rights to organize in a union is just, it's critical and it's crucial to rebuilding from this moment and long-term structurally. Um, and, you know, we, we are, um, like the president, in favor of the PRO Act. We Think it's really important for this for workers, you know, as we think about the, the new economy, the, the space they're in, you know, I often, um, you know, talk to my parents about like the way the world is just 
so much different than the than the world that they were in when they were my age. Um, but I don't think that, you know, new technology is a reason to abandon the rights of workers. I think we can do both at the same time. And so that's, you know, what we're thinking about here at the Department of Labor. Given the broader changes that we're seeing in the economy, in the you know increase in AI and technology, the uh, prominence of the gig economy, and all the things that we learned about the vulnerability and risk that many workers were facing, how do we address that as a possibility for innovation as opposed to a source of fear? That is a great a great question. You know, you're, to your point about staying in the same job, I think. You know, I think I've, my mom is like definitely proud of the work that I'm doing, but she's also just like, God, your resume is too long. You've just had too many jobs. I'm like, this is this is what we're doing. It's fine. Um, but to your serious, substantial question about the gig economy and technology, you know, we have seen the economy go through technological disruption without leaving workers behind. Um, you know, my, my favorite example is thinking about the assembly line. I mean, folks thought that this would, I mean, I mean, it did fundamentally change how the economy works, but you know what we did? We unionized the sector and we made manufacturing jobs, good, safe, well-paying jobs. And I think that's really the lens to think about all of this work is new technology is not anti-worker power. Um, it can be if we let it, but it doesn't have to be. You know, there's there's absolutely no reason that manufacturing is a, is a job that has good benefits, that gets people into the middle class, that protects them and their families, gives them health insurance. Um, but domestic work is not right. Those are those are a set of choices that we've just decided to make. And I think we can we can make different ones. And technology is not a reason to do that. I love having things delivered. I'm absolutely not against the ease of delivery services. But I also know that there's a way for the person delivering that to have protections to be make, making a safe, um, livable wage. And so, yeah, I think worker power is really the through line and the lens to think about all of that. You know, I think it's it speaks to why it's so important and influential to have you in that role because your focus can be on, you know, what is the, the data telling us? What do the numbers say? And allow others to decide what implementation looks like. But because you are in this very important influential role, and as we, you know, sort of wrap our time together, I would ask you, looking forward, what is it that you would say we should be focusing on or really honing in on that may not be the quick soundbite nightly news perspective that most people would really focus on? Yeah, I think there are three things um, that, that I think will really, you know, not just return us to where we were a year ago, but before that. So one, I mean, as we've talked about earlier, is thinking about the economic security of Black women. Um, it will be fundamentally impossible to have an economy that is thriving for black women, but not for everyone else. So that is just a sign that we are we are doing things right for everyone. I think the second thing um, is thinking about the long-term unemployed. I've really been thinking about this a lot lately. And these are folks who have been unemployed for at least six months. And I mean, just that is that is devastating, right? That is that is staggering, that is terrible. And these are the folks who are usually the last to benefit from a tight labor market. Um, from an economic recovery. So just bringing those folks back will make sure that we really are reaching folks who are hard to reach and bringing them back into to employment. And then the third is seeing signs of improvement of worker power. Um, there was a, a great article from Josh Bivens and Larry Michelle at Economic Policy Institute showing you know, what happens when we make a set of policy choices that don't center workers and worker voice and worker power. And 
spoiler alert, we're worse off. Who knew? I mean, I think they knew. They've been studying for a long time. Um, but I think seeing these uh, these changes to build back worker power, I think this is this is the way that sets us up for a, not just a strong middle class, but a strong economy. So those would be my three. Janelle Jones is chief economist for the U.S. Department of Labor and the first Black woman to hold that position. Coming up, we'll chat with the former associate chair of the UC Berkeley Center about Black engagement and unions and what's on the horizon for the labor movement. And later, a conversation with a reporter covering union negotiations here in Connecticut. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we take a deep dive into the state of unions in the U.S. and their impact on the labor market. And later, we'll hear about how unionized healthcare workers in Connecticut are demanding better working conditions. But first, I sat down with Stephen C. Pitts. He's former associate chair of the UC Berkeley Labor Center and host of the Black Work Talk podcast. His work shows the deep relationship between labor unions and Black Americans, and I asked him about the importance of that relationship. I think the starting point, and you're right, that we talk about the relationship between labor and labor, labor unions, defined narrowly, by the way, uh, former unions and, and African-Americans, is very complicated. That on the one hand, you have, well, we have two kind of truisms at work, right? That you have the reality that when you talk about wages or benefits or work conditions, um, the level of those conditions of functional power and to the extent that we talk about United We Stand, the right of We Fall, it's almost like common sense that to the extent that you have collective action on the part of workers in a workplace, you get better conditions. So in that sense, um, the presence of unions helped all workers, including Blacks, to, to increase the quality of life on the job itself. And also what we see is that if you compare the, the Black-white wage differential amongst union members and non-union members, the, the gap is narrower among union members. Um, so, so we see a clear benefit there, there clearly. But the other, other truism is that to you have racism in society, that will infect every element of society itself. And so the labor market, labor unions are any, are any exception. And to the extent that we can look at the history of unions, there are a variety of ways we see discrimination taking place in those arenas. To the extent that unions have influence over access to the job, that means that you have racism in the union itself that will impact that, that, that access. So to the extent you have, say, in the building trades, where it requires some sort of skill set and an apprenticeship program to get in, to the extent that we see racism existing in the, at the entry point, it will be manifested in the entire industry itself. Important to note, though, the trades have gotten better. We talk about industries that are not where unions don't have that kind of control over job access, it's a matter of how much they tolerate management's bias in terms of assigning slots. So for, for the longest time, if you go, go to the steel industry, for instance, you'll see that the, in, in the dirtiest departments, in the blast, for instance, and so forth, that's where we get jobs at. While in the highest skilled trades in those, um, in those, those industries, you see fewer blacks there as well. And so it's, it's a mixed record. And I think people need to hold that duality. Oftentimes we get one over the other. And the life seven isn't either or. It doesn't roll that way. As someone who grew up in a union household, and in particular, a steel union household, so much of what you said resonates when we think about power and access. And in the United States, there is this intimate relationship between power and public policy. 
you've talked about how immigration policy played into not just the role of unions, but also who was within those unions. Talk to us about that connection. It's a couple of markers in terms of immigration policy and, and the labor market. That in 1924, we began to really restrict radically who can come to this country. And that means that we kind of froze the demographics in terms of the foreign born, you might say, at that point in time. But back in so 1965, we radically changed that and we allowed to really kind of democratize the entry into this country that, that, that allowed to have a more diverse set of folk come to this country from Africa and from Asia and, and from Latin America. And so starting in the 60s, we saw kind of a, a, a colorization, you might say, of a labor force. And that would clearly have an impact on the question of who's in the union union movement itself, especially if you look at some of the growing industries, whether it be the public sector or building services or healthcare, we see a rising amounts of, of non-whites in those sectors, and therefore we see a rising amount of, amount of non-whites in the unions as well. It's interesting to think about that density of Black workers in the public sector, the kind of stratification that you mentioned within the sector. One of the other things that I think is interesting today is that while we see a more diverse membership in unions, the overall size of unions has also shifted, where we see unions losing membership over time. What is the impact that you think this decline in union membership or the shift in union membership What's the impact you think it will have on Black communities across the U.S.? To the extent we, that we can talk about kind of old school Black narratives, where like my folks born in Alabama, they met in Chicago, and, and so forth, right? You go to like Chicago and, and Detroit and, and, and New York, when you talk about the Black migration northwards, a lot of those migrations are two good jobs in steel and rubber and, and so forth. And so the extent we can talk about the, the, the decline in unionization in those sectors, that would have an adverse, adverse impact on African-Americans. At the same time, we talk about the, the, the shift in unionization from the private sector, having industry, let's say, to the public sector, that's gonna kind of mitigate that loss. As we see unions growing in the public sector, where we have Blacks there in one of the same cities, Chicago, New York, and throughout the South and California, here in the Bay. And so the, so the shift in unionization actually benefits Black economic prospects because of the rise in unionization in those areas and the presence of, of Blacks in those sectors. I don't want us to lose that point because I think it's so important of how this shift could actually create more opportunities and greater benefits. You know, I remember hearing growing up, get yourself a good union job or get a good government job because there's stability there. There's a pathway into the middle class and there's an opportunity to build wealth, not just for yourself, but for your family. And I'm thinking here of the most, most recent census data that shows that concentrations of Black communities across the U.S. are starting to shift a little as well. And so I think your point about geography and where people are located also gives us a sense of what's possible. One of the things that I think is important when we talk about unions and um, the role that they play beyond just talking about working conditions is the opportunity they have to leverage their platform to talk about other issues and conditions for workers and for their members. 
what's been the role of unions in elevating those kinds of challenges and concerns that may not be unique to Black members, but certainly shape the overall picture and condition? What's been a promising trend inside of union collective bargaining is an idea called bargaining for the common good. And the idea simply is that when you see the power of unions to transform working conditions, how do you use that power to benefit people beyond the workplace itself? And to be honest, I, I kind of wish sometimes we would avoid the labor community dichotomy because I'm on my podcast, one person said, I'm black 24 seven, okay? And so we don't have like, I'm labor here and community there. And in many ways, the best advocates for unionization in the community are those members of the community, uh, labor union members who are in, who are community activists, community deacon, leadership, and so forth. So I really wish sometimes we can minimize the dichotomy. Given we do use that phrase sometimes though, when you talk about bargaining for the common good, we're saying that what can we do in terms of, of course, the bargaining power we have to see if things beyond the, 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 the narrow workplace can be addressed. And so we see sometimes issues of access into jobs, which is clearly benefiting non-union members initially, we can talk about ways to make sure that, that city budgets are stronger and not just taking care of kind of the wages and benefits, but in other areas as, as well. We can talk about trying to bring community organizations to the bargaining table. It would be kind of in, in an informal capacity given the nature of our, of our laws, but still so issues they have could be heard at, at, the, at the table itself. So that's an example of how we can talk about the power of unions going beyond just the, the, the narrow set of people who are in unions themselves. And beyond that as well, that I was speaking about the question of using your bargaining, your power at the bargaining table, we can look at the wider well of public policy. When we looked at, when we, people look at kind of states and union density and the larger issues of social safety nets, we almost always find that those states that have a higher level of unionization, therefore higher union power, have better levels of safety net protections and so forth. One of the biggest stories of this year about unionizing was the attempt to unionize workers at an Amazon plant in Alabama. And although the vote to unionize failed, those local union leaders have not given up. They've already petitioned the National Labor Relations Board saying that Amazon illegally interfered with that election. What would you say are some of the key takeaways of this of that effort and how that attempt in Alabama speaks to some of the contemporary spaces when it comes to organizing? To give you a broad kind of scope of things, I think in trying to analyze any sort of union campaign, you want to examine three broad buckets of activities. What the firm does, in this case Amazon, what the union does, and the broader kind of social, political climate in the, in the community itself. I raise it because there's some things that are beyond our control and some things you can control and it'd be important to focus on what we can control the most. I mean, Amazon did what Amazon would do and we could have probably written a book on their behavior prior to. The, the activity they did in terms of having captive audience meetings, the way they kind of conspired with the city to change the traffic light patterns, so union members, union members couldn't talk to the workers at, at traffic lights. They did they did to block the campaign. And it's important to, and to look at where they might violate the law, but it's also important to recognize the law itself is insufficient. That, that, that's one thing to stand on the law when the law is just. Um, when it's not just, we have a different sort of conversation. 
And, and so we know what Amazon would do and did. And I said, I can't really talk to what should have been done, kind of like a, a in the moment analysis. But in general, the idea is that you spend serious time to build strong in-house committees. Now, how you do that depends on the context. But the notion of having strong in-house committees is, is super important. Second important thing is that you must have the hard conversations with workers which have to take place outside the workplace. There's no way on a bathroom break. There's no way at a stoplight. I can really have a good discussion that says, yo, doing so-and-so, you know what's happening in the workplace. You can't get what you want by yourself. That can only happen through collective action. That's a hard conversation. And it has to be take place. We can have a long, just face-to-face, one-on-one conversation. Those are the most important things. Secondarily, are kind of the, the, the superstar stuff. When Killer Mike comes to Birmingham, or Bernie comes to Birmingham, or Danny Glover comes to Birmingham. That's important, but I think it's very minimal overall when we talk about trying to build power to win the addiction campaign. I think it also raises the question of important for whom. And what I really appreciate about your response is that you have laid out the sense of agency and action that can happen or needs to happen in multiple spaces. So it's not just placed on one group of people, but seeing how at every level there is this possibility for change and for action. I want to shift a little because we see this division in public support overall for unions. And it's always interesting which types of unions the public tends to support. So public safety unions, for example, for law enforcement or for uh, fire departments seem to be much higher than when we talk about unions for teachers and what the public response is in terms of what the benefit will be and what the conditions will be. How do unions do a better job or a stronger job of reaching out to communities of color to both make clear the benefits of having an organized space, but also be able to have people commit to the resources that are necessary to get them going? Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, I think the the statement you made in terms of of the, the the support inside the community for unions, different unions varying across different types of unions, also varies across different communities. I'm sure if you look at the support for police unions, you might find different levels of support in different communities themselves. So that's important for me to make note of that. Um, but, but beyond that, we see rising support for unions across the board. I mean, we saw about two years ago, the, the kind of Red for Ed campaign, where across the, where across the nation, we saw rising levels of union activity among teachers unions in places we wouldn't have thought in Arizona, West Virginia. And so I think that we see across the board, the realization that, that, that one weapon in the fight against inequality and instability and uncertainty is a union. So that's happening across the board. Now to, to expand that, the most important thing one is to do good organizing because the best messenger, the best validator is someone who's actually in the community itself. I speak to back in the peak of unionization where across the country is 35% was the union density. That means that if you went to your backyard and you looked at neighbor to your left, neighbor to your right, one of you, one of you in a union, which means that's not a foreign concept. So the most important thing, not simply to pass up money, by the way, to get support, is to organize your workers into unions. As we think about the future moving forward and how unions can play a role in protecting workers, are you optimistic about that future or is there something that gives you pause? 
Well, I'm always hopeful. It's kind of from day one, I've been a hopeful person. But beyond that, we do get the idea that united we stand, divided we fall. We get that as a truism. And that, that thing will win out as a principle. And now the question really is, will be the form of the collective action? How it look in sector A, sector B, region A, region B? But it will happen. You're gonna see a rising tide of organization itself. It might have, not, not be the same unions that we see today or saw 50 years ago, but that will happen. Um, the, the challenges are there though, where you talk about the, the current asymmetry and power between the power of people who fight working people and the power of the elites, that asymmetry is, is major. The idea that we have such a, a kind of a beatdown, I say, in, in, since the mid seventies around wages and conditions themselves makes it harder to, to organize. I say sometimes when you look at some of the, some of the support from gig workers to maintain their gig status, that comes sometimes because people have been hustling all the time. They don't know a good job. And they're trying to defend the best they can do to patch things together. So the challenge is, is to provide a better alternative. And, and when we do that, people see, I, I do what I do now as individuals, but if I come together, I can do even better. That was Stephen C. Pitts, former associate chair of the UC Berkeley Labor Center and host of the podcast, Black Work Talk. After the break, we'll hear more about union negotiations happening right now in Connecticut. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This month, long-term healthcare workers in Connecticut have been voicing their frustrations after a long year on the front line of the COVID-19 pandemic. Representatives from Union SEIU 1199 New England have been negotiating with the state government and operators about better wages and benefits for the over 7,000 healthcare workers here in Connecticut. But unlike most negotiations, the union is also negotiating with the state because 80% of their employers' revenue comes from state-funded Medicaid. Nicole Leonard is a health reporter for Connecticut Public Radio, and she's been covering the negotiations. Ask her to tell us a bit about the membership of the union and what it looks like here in Connecticut. Well, this union is one of the largest uh, unions, at least in the state of Connecticut. They represent a lot of the state health care workers that work in nursing homes. They work in group home care, um, home health aides. Um, and so they've really been carrying a lot of the work that's being done at those facilities, especially during this um, pandemic. And their uh, workforce is um, very much a lot of black and brown and white working class people. Um, and uh, so it's a very diverse pool of workers um, and majority of them are women. So we've learned a lot over this last year about how the groups you just mentioned have been particularly vulnerable during this pandemic because of the kind of direct care jobs that they have, and then exposure to COVID-19 and some of the other health risks. What have been the conditions for the workers represented by this union and in the types of facilities and programs where they are working? 
The conditions have been um, pretty rough, actually. I mean, going all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic, workers were immediately coming out and saying, we don't have enough personal protective equipment. Some some people were even posting photos of them wearing trash bags because that's they said, this is all we have to protect ourselves and our residents. Um, I've talked to some people who've actually developed over the last couple of months PTSD from this experience, and they're having really a really tough time you know, their mental health has suffered, um, you know, so the conditions have been, it, they've been pretty harsh and, and they've been working in the facilities that have been hit, re- you could say the hardest. So let's talk about one of the workers because you've talked to a number of people about their experiences during the pandemic. And we know that the union is saying that 22 union members have died from COVID-19. And so that's the, the number of deaths, but the exposure and the contraction has been much higher. Talk to us about Gloria Plummer. Yeah, Gloria Plummer is is one of those um, nursing home workers. She's a CNA, which is a certified nursing assistant. She's been uh, she's been a CNA for over twenty six years, um, and she's one of these workers who's had to go to work every day, fearing that she is going to be you know witnessing her residents suffer, but also herself fear that she uh, might contract the coronavirus. And that is actually what happened. She did contract the coronavirus. Um, and this is what she had to say um, shortly after that had happened last year. When I heard that the residents who sneezed on me died, I wondered if I'm next. One worker took it home to her mom. She passed away. The worker is still grieving the pain and sorrow that she caused her mother's death. So you see, we were called heroes and essential workers, yet you refused to pay us a decent livable wage. Nicole, there is so much pain in Gloria Plummer's voice. But there's also a recognition that she and her co-workers show up to do this job every day, even with all of the risk, because they feel that they are doing something that is important and are saying, not just compensate us as if our work is important, but protect us so that we can continue doing that. How does Gloria's experience fit with what you've heard from other workers about the risk to themselves and to the families that they go home to? That's the thing that what you said is that, you know, many of these workers, I would say most of them, if not all, are super passionate about what they do. These are hard jobs. They, they're not easy. Some of them are working on Alzheimer's units and, and you know, very difficult, you know, very painful experiences. Some of them are working in group homes where they're working people with mental and behavioral and uh, developmental disabilities. And so this is this is tough work. But all of them I've talked to say they love it so much and that. That's why they're doing it. But it's so painful to be so dedicated to a job that they don't feel respected in, that they don't feel like they are being seen, that they don't feel like they're being paid enough, um, which a lot of them are not. They're making such low wages. And, and this is something that, you know, some of these people have to hold two, three jobs just to make the income that they need in order to, you know, live in Connecticut, in a place like Connecticut, which is such a, you know, a high expense state. 
The other thing that I heard in Gloria's voice was that, yes, this is what we've learned from COVID-19 and how that put people at greater risk and had people working for longer hours because they were short staff. But what we also know then is that this is not unique to this pandemic, that many of these challenges have been raised by workers and even families for quite some time. What are the demands then that union members are pushing for? Yeah, and what you just said, it it does stem from a lot of these issues predate the pandemic. I mean, nursing homes and long-term care have been historically underfunded. This is not anything new. Um, In fact, some of the state leaders, while they were negotiating um, funding, they had referred back to raises in the past that were so minuscule, 1% of, you know, raises in the past, and it's so small. And so um, the things that workers have been um, using this pandemic as a jumping off point to say, you know, you need us. And so this is what we're asking for is, you know, one of them is wage, wages, a lot of workers make, you know, between 12 and $15 an hour, for really hard, some of it's really hard labor and and difficult labor. And that's such a small, you know, um, hourly wage compared to what we're talking about, you know, expenses rising continuously in Connecticut. Uh, The other thing that they were talking about were benefits, things that other people take for granted when they take jobs and they assume, oh, I'm going to be offered health insurance. I'm going to be offered a 401k for retirement planning. And a lot of these workers aren't offered these things. They're not offered at their jobs or they're offered at such a exorbitant um, amount. I think one uh, worker had said that it would cost $6,000 a month to pay for health insurance. I don't know about you, but there are a lot of people who even make more than 12 to $15 an hour who don't have $6,000 a month to pay for health insurance. And some of them, you know, they aren't offered retirement options. So they don't have an option to put their money towards things that they, that, you know, they can use to retire at a decent age. Um, and the other thing was, you know, uh, short staffing has plagued this industry for a long time. And that has to do with the wages, too. Why would somebody come and work for a facility or, or in a, an industry that pays this much where they can maybe work even as a, a certified nursing assistant or, you know, get a registered uh, nursing degree and work at somewhere where they know the payoff is going to be higher? So that's, you know, it's been hard to attract um talent to the workforce. And then you wind up with the short staffing. And then you wind up with people in dangerous situations when they're working uh, an infectious disease pandemic like COVID-19. There's something incredibly ironic and troubling that you have people working in healthcare who can't afford health coverage for themselves to be healthy, but to also take care of others. You spoke with Jennifer Brown, who works in this, this field, but her daughter, also does. And she talked a little bit about what that means to have two members, two generations of her family involved. What has been the experience of Jennifer Brown? Jennifer uh, described, you know, going into this field at a a very young age, um, she really wanted to take care of people. And she calls the residents that she takes care for her family. Um, She spent holidays with them. She's even brought her kids when they were younger to work when she was at um, working during Thanksgiving or Christmas. And they had spent their holidays with residents at group homes, which is where she works at. Her daughter now has been working alongside her in the industry for the past 13 years about. And um, 
And she's seen, I think for her, what she's seen is these issues not only affecting her, but now affecting her daughter. Um, and so she describes a little bit about um, what it's been like to work for her daughter and thinking about what, what the um, issues in this industry mean for not only her, but, as, but her whole family now. My daughter has been working aside, alongside with me, I think it's 13 years now. I make 1754. My daughter makes exactly what I make. Um, I think it's really, it, it's degrading to me to know she's come in. Although we, I love my job. That's first. I love the care that I give. I love making people smile. And to know that we can go to work every day, work, it's, our, it's become my career. And I have nothing to fall back on. It's really, it's really sad. You know, and now that my daughter is following right behind me, I don't want to have to have to go through that. Nicole, Jennifer talks about having her daughter in this field and, and not wanting her daughter to struggle the way that she has. As you mentioned, she talks about the residents as her family, her extended family. And what we've heard a lot over this last year have been families of people living in long-term care facilities saying, we are worried about our family members. How do we reconcile this so that it's not workers against families and clients or, you know, extended family members there, but it's about understanding how these conditions and these challenges create a problematic situation for everyone involved? Well, I think that's what the workers are really trying to do. In fact, Jennifer um, told me that she has been, you know, when um, the union announced that workers were going on strike, she had taken a lot of time to talk to the families of the residents that were in her care and sort of trying to explain, you know, we are, this may seem like something that, you know, the workers are advocating on themselves, but they're really doing this in the best interest of their residents because, the, you know, when you're short staffed, that affects the, that directly affects the residents, right? You don't have as many people to spend time with you or to do the necessary things that, um, that need to be done. Um, And so the better, you know, the better you support the workforce, the more they're going to be able to take care of their residents in the best possible way and provide the best quality of care. And so that's what they're, the message that they're trying to um, give to families who, of course, you know, obviously are concerned about um, their loved ones um, who get services and care in these facilities and and who are worried about how um, strikes and things like that would would affect them. But, uh, but workers in the long run are saying, you know, what we're asking for is to um, improve our circumstances. And of course, the, the families they go home to, but as well as the residents. And this will, you know, the changes that they're asking for, they're saying this will directly impact the quality of care in a good way. Last week, the governor's office submitted an offer that meets most of the union's demands. But looking forward, we know that our state is graying, that we have an older population where these kinds of services will become even more important. Looking ahead beyond this particular negotiation, what should we be focusing on? That's that's an interesting, I mean, 
you know, yes, there, there are more people who are um, aging. We're coming up to the um, baby boomer generation that has a lot of people that are not only retiring, but getting to the age where they might need services, uh, particularly in nursing home or home care. Um, you know, it's interesting because the governor uh, brought this up recently and uh, in regards to the funding package offer that they have offered, which is sort of um, timed out to four years right from now. It's, it's a four year type package. So we're thinking about four years into the future. Um, but what he said was, you know, as more people in the state age, will they continue to go to nursing homes? Or will more people want to be cared for at home? And that's not something that's um, different or unique. A lot of people uh, get care from home through home health care. And actually, home health care workers are part of this union, too. They're the one, they've been out on the streets, too, saying we don't have enough PPE, you know, we need health benefits. Um, and so we may see a shift um, in the future, as more people prefer to get care at their homes. The pandemic, I think, revealed how necessary and vital that these workers in this industry is. Um, and what they're saying is, you know, this is a good first step, even this deal to, you know, come to a 20 hour minimum wage for certified nursing assistants and uh, some of the homes opening up more opportunities for healthcare savings and for retirement benefits. But, um, you know, this is a good first step, but this needs to continue over the years because the industry is sort of operating in a deficit already, right? Issues that happened before the pandemic. And so if we want this area to um, last for the next, you know, 10 years, 20 years and, and be better than it was, then they're saying, you know, you need to continue to invest in us and in the people that are getting these services at the end of the day. Nicole Leonard is a health reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. To find more of her coverage on the ongoing talks between the union and the state, visit WNPR.org. Disrupted is produced by Katie Tularski, James Scoble-Wolf, Anna Elizabeth, and Shekinah Collier. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. 